It has been a tremendous privilege for me to be with you these four weeks. I thank you kindly for your very warm reception. This return to Wichita has been uh, so encouraging to me. I've seen marriages at which I officiated still prospering. I've seen children I dedicated now in college or having families of their own still in the church. I've seen uh, people who came to faith in Christ, still walking with Christ. Uh, what, what a great privilege. I rejoice in the continuing spiritual prosperity of First Free. I told you last Sunday I was on my way to my mother's 99th birthday. I thought I'd show you a birthday picture of her. She looks pretty good, doesn't she? <laughs> Mom lived, uh, has lived to be 99. Her mother lived to 99. My father and grandfather both lived into their 90s, so I got pretty good genes. Um, maybe in 13 years I'll be back to preach again. I don't know. <laughs> this morning I want to talk about one of the hardest things we are ever called upon to do, and that is to forgive those who have hurt us deeply. Let's face it. Forgiveness of any kind is difficult. The two hardest words in the English language to speak are, I'm sorry. But there are some people who have hurt us so deeply that it's almost impossible to forgive them. I say almost because God wouldn't ask us to do it if it weren't impossible. But it does take supernatural power. I'm almost certain that everyone in this room has someone in the category of the hard to forgive. Maybe it's a spouse who has betrayed you, or an employer who laid you off without cause, or a childhood friend who made a very cutting remark, or God forbid, someone who physically abused you. I'm talking about someone you have never forgiven, someone you stay awake at night thinking about, someone who you never wish to see again, and uh, perhaps in your worst moment, wish would suffer or even die because of what they did to you. Forgiveness is a very big and complicated topic. It has a lot of aspects to it. But it seems to me the first question we need to ask is why? Why should I forgive? And the first and foremost answer is because God requires it. Jesus gave a model prayer to his disciples, including this statement, that we should forgive as, uh, for, he said, we should pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then immediately after the prayer, he adds these thoughts, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. Friends, that's a scary thought. And I don't even know all the ramifications of it. But at the very least, it should give us a tremendous motivation to consider forgiving those who have hurt us. However, it's not the only motivation the Scripture offers. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.32 gives a very positive motivation. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. 
If you can't forgive others out of fear of the consequences, then you should forgive them because of the love that has been shown to you. Either way, forgiveness is not optional. It is required by God. Secondly, forgiveness is essential for the health of the church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about a man who sinned so grievously such a, in such a heinous manner that he was excommunicated by the church. But then he repented, and forgiveness was then essential. And Paul gives two reasons why it's essential. First, so the man would not be overwhelmed by sorrow. So he wouldn't give up, maybe even commit suicide. But the second reason is so that Satan would not get a foothold in the church. You see, Satan doesn't care whether we ignore sin in our midst or whether we refuse to forgive someone after they've repented. Either way, he gets the victory. Third, it's the only way to stop the pain. A failure to forgive hurts everyone. It hurts the perpetrator, it hurts the victim, it hurts their family, their friends, everyone around them. But the one who suffers the most is the one who refuses to forgive, who withholds forgiveness and allows bitterness and anger to eat his lunch. I've seen it, and you have too. It's like a cancer that metastasizes throughout the body. With that as a basis for why we should pursue forgiveness, I want to turn our attention to the category of those who are especially hard to forgive. I actually want to mention four categories. And the first is chronic offenders. It's one thing to forgive a person once or twice for some offense against us. It's possible if we try hard to restore fellowship, to rekindle love. But what about the chronic offender? The one who hurts us again and again and again. I'm thinking of the spouse who is having his or her umpteenth affair, or the child who is on his fourth drug rehab program. I'm also thinking about chronic offenders whose offenses are more mundane. The husband who is a couch potato, the wife who is a terrible housekeeper, the child who is uh, always rebellious, the in-laws who won't quit interfering, the neighbor who interrupts the peace and quiet that we deserve at home. Every one of us has such irregular people, probably several of them, in our lives. We beg for, 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 for relief. We pray for change. We try to reason with that person, but the offense goes on and on and on. Take the couch potato. Suppose his wife is an intelligent person who enjoys conversation, culture, and friends. But this guy gets home from work, he grabs a six-pack, he flops down on the couch in front of the big screen TV and eventually falls asleep. He maybe wakes up about 1 a.m. to go to bed, and then he gets romantic. And this wife is in an almost unbearable situation. How does she forgive again and again? Another category is those who hurt our children. I don't know about you, but the people I have the hardest time forgiving are not those who hurt me, but those who hurt my family, especially my children. Early on in our time here in St. Louis, 
a neighbor boy, a teenager, shot my son Andy with a pellet rifle. Uh, Andy was riding his tricycle down the sidewalk, and he shot him outside his uh, window. And uh, fortunately, he missed his head and hit his foot, raised a bad welt right through his tennis shoe. I immediately called the police. They came, and all they did is tell the boy not to do it again. The fact that his father was an important judge in St. Louis probably had something to do with the kid's kid gloves treatment that he received. Ironically, those neighbors treated us as the offenders because we had called the police. What is it that makes it so hard to forgive those who hurt our children? Whether it be the neighborhood bully or the child who makes a cruel remark or the coach who plays favorites or again, God forbid, someone who molests our children. I think it's because our kids are so vulnerable And we recognize from our own experience how difficult it is to work through those kinds of issues. We ache for the loss of innocence. A third category of of people who are hard to forgive are invisible people. Think, for example, of those who invade our lives very briefly, hurt us, and then disappear, leaving us only with painful memories. Some of you perhaps have fallen in love with someone and made a tremendous emotional investment in that person, and then they just pull away. You try to find out what's going on, and they refuse to talk, treating the entire relationship as a bad joke. Your emotions undoubtedly range from anger to embarrassment to hate. How do you forgive that? Another kind of invisible offender is the one who hurts us but hides behind the face of a corporation or government bureaucracy. Undoubtedly, some of you have been summarily laid off from work without any good reason. One writer said this, Organizations have little grace. They can knock you down, drag you across a bed of nails, throw your remains into the street, and just before you hit the pavement, hand you a $10 plaque with your name on it to show the company's gratitude. Some of you have been there. Organizations are amoral. They can leave you bleeding in the street with no breathing human being around to accept the blame. It's all company policy. There was a family here in our church very early on who lived in Times Beach, is a beautiful little community on the Merrimack River. There was a Bible church there called Times Beach Bible Church that was pastored by a friend of my father's. But a road contractor poured some oil on the streets laced with dioxin. This was before the days of the great EPA bailouts. This family lost their home, lost everything they had, One of their children developed very severe medical problems and died because of that dioxin. How do you forgive that? Still another kind of invisible offender is the one who has the nerve to up and die before we have a chance to to process forgiveness. King David was called upon to forgive just such an invisible person when his son Absalom staged a coup d'etat and died in the process. You remember David's words? He said, Oh, my son Absalom, 
My son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. That's sharing the pain of a person trying to forgive someone who is not there to forgive. Some of you were abused by parents who are now gone. You were abused emotionally or psychologically, maybe even physically. Those memories are bitter, and the anger you have carried has been devastating. Why is it so hard to forgive parents who are gone? Well, it's hard just because they are gone. You can't crawl up in their laps and hear them say, I'm sorry, even if they are. Dead parents are hard to forgive because there's something in us that thinks our parents shouldn't have to be forgiven. We would rather blame ourselves and the ones who gave us life. We feel we ought to view our parents as a saintly mother or a noble father, even if they weren't. And a final category I want to mention is those who do not care. Most of us will at some point in our lives come across a person who hurts us intentionally and simply doesn't care. In such a case, there is no hope for repentance, but our sense of justice calls for it. In Luke 17, we have the following dialogue between Jesus and his apostles. Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostles respond to the Lord, we need more faith. The interesting thing to me about this passage is that contrary to some other passages, it seems to say that repentance is a requirement for forgiveness. But what if a person doesn't care? How do you forgive that? So far, I've talked only about categories of people who are hard to forgive. I want to turn our attention now to a real-life story, Joseph forgiving his brothers. We've been studying the life of Joseph, this 17-year-old boy in Canaan who was sold by his brothers to a caravan of Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt He was sold in a slave auction, became a household slave of one of Pharaoh's officials. He was framed, even though he did everything you could expect of him to avoid sin, and thrown into prison where he stayed for at least two years. And um, then through almost unbelievable set of circumstances, and of course through the providence of God, he ends up being the prime minister of the greatest nation on earth, Egypt. As prime minister, he enforces delayed gratification on an entire nation to save up food during years of plenty so they will have some during a famine. That famine subsequently hits the entire Middle East, and Joseph's, ten of Joseph's eleven brothers come to Egypt to find food. Joseph, in his capacity as prime minister and head of food distribution, recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. After all, they haven't seen him for 22 years. He's fully Egyptian, dressed like an Egyptian. He speaks Egyptian. Over a period of time involving two trips by his brothers to Egypt to find food, 
Joseph subtly explores whether his brother's consciences have been awakened. I wish we could tell all the details there. You'll have to read it in chapters 42 to 44. But in chapter 45, we come across the pathos-filled account of Joseph revealing his identity to his brothers. We want to read Genesis 45, so if you'll turn there with me. I invite you to stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. You know, Joseph said, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But what they heard was, I am Joseph, and you are dead men. (laughs) Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have, I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother, Benjamin, and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. Now skip down to verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. 
But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Can you imagine anyone more difficult to forgive than Joseph's brothers? But somehow Joseph manages to do it. I want us to look at four principles that come out of this chapter that can help us in our own pursuit of forgiveness. The first is that forgiveness requires honestly acknowledging that someone has hurt you. The first thing Joseph says is, I am Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't justify it on the basis of his father's favoritism. He just tells it like it is. Friends, you cannot forgive what is not wrong. You must call it sin. You must call it evil. You must call it inexcusable or it can't really be forgiven. A few years ago, I was returning from a fishing trip up in the boundary waters of northern Minnesota with my son and my grandson. I was driving home through Kansas City and just north of Olathe, a highway patrolman decided to meet my acquaintance. <laughs> I pulled over and got out my license, rolled down the window. He came up to the window and he said, you just crossed four lanes of traffic without signaling. And I acknowledged that I had done that. Furthermore, he said, you were driving 71 in a 65 mile an hour zone, which frankly I didn't think was that bad. That was pretty normal. At any rate, he excused himself and went back to his car and spent an eternity back there as I stewed about what an expensive trip this had been. I had flipped my canoe up in the boundary waters, lost my fishing equipment, lost my glasses, I had ruined my watch, and I also stewed about how cops always seem to go after sports cars because I was driving my Camaro T-top that some of you will remember, a car I eventually had to sell because I couldn't get in or out of it anymore. (laughs) But eventually the patrolman came back to the car with a ticket in his hands which listed all of my sins. And then he spoke those beautiful words, this is a warning ticket. Now why didn't he just tell me that up front? I think it was because it was important to let it sink in that I had broken the law, I had committed serious infractions. Only then could I appreciate the forgiveness that he offered. Friends, that's kind of a trite illustration of a profound truth, and that is that forgiveness requires honestly acknowledging that a sin has been committed. The second principle I find, and this is the most important one I will deal with today, is that forgiveness requires faith in the providence of God. In the trials of life, even in the intentional evil that people perpetrate upon us, something is happening that you cannot see with your eyes or hear with your ears. God is at work. This is a fundamental assumption of all of Scripture, 
but especially of Joseph's theology. Three times in verse 5, verse 7, and verse 8, Joseph says of his betrayal and exile in Egypt, God sent me ahead of you. Of course, the brothers are the ones who sold him into slavery. They were responsible for this terrible act of betrayal. But something else was going on at the same time. Something big. Something we must not miss. The first time Joseph says God God is the one who sent him to Egypt, he said it was to save many lives, to save the lives of the Egyptians and other people in the Middle East from this terrible famine. The second time he mentions it in verse 7, it was uh, the, the reason given is to preserve you, my brothers, a remnant on earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. You see, the nation of Israel would owe its existence to Joseph. For 200 years since Abraham to Joseph, maybe a little more than that, the family had only grown to 70 individuals. In the next 300 years, it's going to grow to 2 million until Moses takes them out of Egypt. Joseph is the one responsible for that. They owe him their existence. And then in verse 8, Joseph offers a third reason why God sent him. And it was, he made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his whole household, and ruler of all Egypt. What an amazing truth. If you look at those three reasons together, you find that God, was, God had international intentions, national intentions, and personal intentions for Joseph, all at the same time. But there's an even clearer expression of this theme that forgiveness requires faith in the providence of God in the last chapter of the book of Genesis. Jacob has died. It's the end of Joseph's life. Many years later, uh, the brothers, uh, with the death of Jacob, the brothers are once again scared spitless that Joseph is finally going to turn on them and get his revenge. But he reassures them. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Uh, Here we see, again, that that he is honest about the offense. You intended to harm me. But he talks also about the providence of God. God intended it for good. Friends, please get this. It is no contradiction to say that the brothers were 100% guilty and 100% responsible for their sin and to affirm that God at the same time in the very same incident is actively bringing about his divine purposes. In fact, I don't know how you can ever fully forgive an offense unless you realize that God was there God was actively involved in minimizing the damage and bringing about his perfect will through it. Of course, is not this true to an even more profound uh, extent? In the death of Christ, the one to whom Joseph is a divine illustration, Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached an amazing sermon. He said, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate 
plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. The Jews were absolutely guilty of crucifying Jesus. Peter calls them wicked men. And yet God was at work at the same time with his deliberate plan of salvation. Thus Jesus could say on the cross, Father, forgive them. You see, forgiveness requires faith in the providence of God. Now a third principle is that forgiveness releases the offender from his obligation to you. Joseph says to his brothers, Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. And later he says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Please understand that it is not within the prerogative of Joseph to release these people from their guilt or to remove the consequences that may come because of their action. But he can release them from himself. Forgiving forgiving is an act of the will resolving to pay the consequences of the offender's sin ourselves and to not use it against them. Forgiving is allowing God to be the judge. Sometimes I hear people confusing forgiving with forgetting. They'll sometimes say, just forget it and move on. That is not particularly helpful advice, friends. Clara Barton was a godly woman, a Civil War nurse who started the American Red Cross, and she was known for not holding grudges. One time a friend reminded her of a cruel accusation someone made against her, but she didn't seem to remember. And the individual said, don't you remember the wrong that was done to you? And Clara responded, no, I distinctly remember forgetting that. She was not really forgetting it. She was releasing it. And that's what God calls us to do. I came across this prayer, which I think expresses true forgiveness so well. Lord, what so-and-so did to me was wrong, and he should pay for what he did. But today I'm releasing him from his obligation to me. Not because he deserves it or because he has asked for my forgiveness, but because you, God, have released me from the debt I owe you. And the fourth principle is forgiveness allows for restoration. This is critical, friends. Joseph doesn't say to his brothers, I forgive you, but I never want to see your ugly faces again. (laughs) Instead, he puts his arms around them. He weeps. He kisses them. And most importantly of all, he talks to them. They have this amazing conversation I would love to have been in on, sharing all that has happened over the last 22 years. Oh, I want to add a very important caveat here, though. I chose my words carefully when I said that forgiveness allows for restoration, not forgiveness demands restoration. Restoration is a two-way street. Sometimes the offender won't allow it. Sometimes the circumstances don't allow it. 
But the one who truly forgives at least opens up the possibility of restoration. I want to go back very briefly over the four categories I mentioned earlier and give some some simple advice about how to deal with those. First of all, the chronic offender. It seems to me Jesus addressed this issue when he got a question from Peter who said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? He thought he was being very magnanimous because the the scribes and Pharisees said you only had to forgive three times. But Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Some translations say 70 times seven. Whether it's 70 or 490, this person qualifies as a chronic offender. But Jesus sets no limits to our forgiveness. That doesn't mean, however, that tolerance has no limits. Al-Anon and related organizations have done great work, I think, to help people who live with chronic offenders to demonstrate tough love with those individuals instead of becoming enablers of their behavior. It's not a lack of forgiveness to put sanctions on unacceptable behavior. To tell a son or daughter they can't bring their live-in boyfriend or girlfriend to sleep with them in your house. It's not a failure to forgive for a wife to move out when her husband has another affair. Secondly, just a word about those who hurt our children. Despite the difficulty of forgiving those who hurt our children, we must do it. How else are they going to learn to forgive? That doesn't mean we don't protect them as well as we could. It doesn't mean we accept the unacceptable. But we cannot harbor bitterness in our lives and not expect it to leak over into our families. Invisible people. How do you forgive someone who is no longer around? They're dead. Lewis Smedes offers this advice for forgiving dead parents. First, he says, keep in mind that no parent is perfect. Even a saintly mother fails her children at times. Two, recognize that your painful feelings are valid. Three, accept the fact that reconciliation is impossible. You will have to be satisfied with the healing of memories. And fourth, you may need to forgive yourself even as you forgive your parents. He writes, the hurt we get from our parents almost always makes us feel guilty or ashamed of ourselves. I have never met a person who hated his father or mother who did not also hate himself. And then those who do not care. In forgiving those who intentionally hurt us and couldn't care less, it's important to remember that forgiveness is of two kinds. It's forgiveness in the heart and forgiveness verbally. The former is always required. The latter is required only when the offender is sorry and repents. The person who hurts us and doesn't care should be forgiven for Christ's sake and for our own sake. But we are not required to verbalize that or to seek reconciliation. Finally, what about the hardest person of all to forgive? And I actually think there are two of them. The first I'm thinking of is God. 
Many people struggle with forgiving God. Of course, in a very real sense, he can't be forgiven because he has never sinned. He hasn't really even hurt us, except in the sense that a surgeon hurts us for our ultimate good. Yet I find that many people are angry, even bitter at God, for things he has allowed, for things he hasn't allowed, for unanswered prayers, for dreams that go unfulfilled, for loneliness that goes unabated, for not showing his face. And though they are angry with God, they're afraid to say so out loud. But in their hearts they are saying, if God could have prevented such and such, and he didn't, this pain that seems to have no redeeming value in my life, why shouldn't I be angry at him? Two thoughts. The word seems is very important there. Things that seem to have no redeeming value sometimes have great eternal value. And secondly, God can handle your disappointment in him. He would rather hear you complain to him than to ignore him. The psalmist poured out his disappointment to God in many of the psalms. The prophet Habakkuk spoke these words, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Please note to whom these words are spoken. They're spoken to God. He's big enough to handle your anger and your disappointment. He loves you in spite of it. He will never abandon you. There's one other person you may have trouble forgiving, and that's yourself. Friend, God created you, and God doesn't make junk. He redeemed you. He loves you. He gifted you. He will never abandon you. Once you have truly confessed your sin, and God has forgiven you, then forgive yourself. Release it. Enjoy the freedom that God has, has provided for you. If the Son shall make you free, friend, you shall be free indeed. Now, I know I haven't solved all the problems that, of forgiving the hard to forgive in our lives, but I hope I've given you at least the hope that you can deal with the anger and the bitterness and the resentment trouble so many people. Is there someone this morning that you need to forgive? Or at least begin the process of forgiving? It's not a fast process. It takes time. But is there someone like that in your life? In a world where life can be unbearably unfair, the only way we can make it better sometimes is to forgive people with the divine power of love, to heal memories of the past, and then to get on with living life to its fullest. We can do that because that's what God did for us. We have all sinned, grievously sinned. But God has poured out his grace and mercy on us, offering us forgiveness through the death of his one and only son who died to pay the penalty for our sin. Is that amazing or what? Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for your forgiveness of my sin. I have violated your laws. I have fallen short of your standards. I have failed you in so many ways. Yet you have forgiven me fully and completely, washing my sins away as far as the east is from the west. You did that through the precious blood of Jesus. How then can I refuse to forgive those who offend me, a fellow sinner? Lord, grant me the supernatural resources that I need to forgive. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.